Hey everybody out there, this is Eric Krasno, and you are listening to the Plus One Podcast. And I hope you're listening from a beautiful place, on a mountain or on a hike, or maybe you're in your backyard, or maybe you're in your kitchen making a meal, or on a walk, but uh, I hope you're in a good place, and uh, all you creative people out there, this is the time, right, to get creative, and uh, I know a lot of people are spending time fixing their houses. My fiance and I have been hooking up the backyard and, you know, trying to enjoy this time. I know it's a scary time, but, um, you know, we got to enjoy ourselves. We got to take advantage of having all this time on our hands. And I got to give a shout out to my New Orleans people, because right now, a lot of you and myself would be down there enjoying Jazz Fest. And uh, this would have been my 20th year at Jazz Fest, and a lot of you guys know I, I play a lot of gigs down there, and it's become something really important to me, and I didn't realize how much I would miss it until really the last couple of days, seeing everyone posting, oh, I would have been here, I would have been there, and WWOZ now is, uh, is uh, broadcasting a really cool Jazz Fest, or Jazz Festing uh, in place. For those of you guys that don't know about WWOZ, it's my favorite radio station out in New Orleans, and uh, they broadcast um, on the internet too, so you can check that out. I just listened to Ella Fitzgerald and Stevie Wonder, and then listened to Dave Tarkanowski with George Porter, and uh, if you're missing Jazz Fest, check out WWOZ. I know that for me, I've had some of my greatest musical moments during Jazz Fest, a lot of you guys know about the Jazz and Heritage Festival, which takes place at the fairgrounds uh, Thursday through Sunday, two weekends, right? But also at night, there's a whole other world going on. All the different clubs in town have bands playing through the night, sometimes into the morning. And uh, there's collaboration happening between members of all different bands coming together. There's certain projects that have formed at Jazz Fest and remained bands through the years. I know I have like two or three projects that were born in Jazz Fest, which are like, okay, this guy's in town, this guy's in town, let's see if we can put something together. And in a lot of cases, there's no rehearsal, and people just come together. I know one of my favorite gigs ever uh, was with Ivan Neville, O'Teal Burbridge, Stanton Moore, and we had no idea what we were going to do. We just got on stage, and it was one of my favorite musical experiences I've ever had. Um, I've also jumped on stage with like Lonnie Smith and some of my heroes throughout the years where, you know, someone will say, hey man, he wants you to sit in and you just jump up there. And I've just seen so many amazing moments happen at Jazz Fest um, during this time of year. I'm definitely going to miss it. Um, one of my favorite bands that I've been a part of through Jazz Fest is called The Cleaners. And that's with my guest today, Mr. Marcus King, Dwayne Trucks, and... Uh, Kevin Scott on bass, and we've had D-Vibes on keys and John Medeski on keys. Um, Dave Schools from Widespread Panic has sat in with the band. And uh, Marcus and I uh, have had a lot of great musical experiences together. We've known each other probably about six years. We've written songs together. We've toured together. One of his earliest tours was Eric Krasno Band, Marcus King Band, where we would sit in with each other every night. And that led to us being in the studio together and collaborating on songs together. And more recently, he was in L.A. doing some writing and some sessions, and he and I actually recorded a song for the Neil Casal tribute album that is being worked on right now. And while he was in town, we decided to come to my studio and record this podcast. 
At the time, I was planning on recording most of them here in my studio, but once the coronavirus hit and social distancing became a mandatory thing, that became harder to do. So I realized that this is actually one of the last in-person conversations that I've had in the past few months. And it was good to catch up. Um, I've gotten to know Marcus really well over the years, gotten to know his family. Shout out to Marvin King, who's also a really good musician and just one of my favorite people on earth. I've loved watching Marcus's career take off. I can't think of anyone more deserving of the success that he's had in the last couple of years. He's an amazing singer, incredible guitarist, great songwriter, and most of all, just a great dude, a true Southern gentleman, and a great friend. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome today's plus one, Mr. Marcus King. We're here in North Hollywood, California. We got Marcus King in the building. And, uh, you know, this is one of my one of my best friends right here, I, I gotta say. You know, I could old enough to be your dad, really, <laughs> technically, but... It feels um, that way sometimes. But that's the whole vibe, you know, of this show is getting my friends on here. Generally, we hang out in the studio, we make a little music, we vibe out, and we talk a little bit. But Marcus is a special case because I have known you probably five years, maybe four or five years. Yeah, five or something more. Yeah, and, uh, you know, seeing you, the thing that I will say about you as a person is that you haven't changed one bit. <laughs> In a good way. I, I hope swear. that's good, yeah. And, uh, but I've seen all this success happen for you and you just to like, you're, You've always been a great player and a great singer, but your writing and your performance level has really risen. Every time I see you, you're better and better and more engaging as a performer. Um, and the songwriting just keeps getting better, you know? And I think that that is a gift that you have that a lot of people with the skill level that you have don't don't bring to the table. You know, there's a lot of great players, a lot of great singers, but... What I truly appreciate is someone who brings the unique songs, songs that really mm. only they could write. Man, thanks a lot. I'm blushing. Oh, no, I oh, appreciate yeah. it. And I don't bring people on here just to talk, you know, <laughs> blow smoke up your ass. But yeah, I mean, generally, I'm usually I'm usually giving you crap. So mm-hmm. generally, that's why <laughs> that's why it's jarring. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's but it, but it's with love. Always. So even though I probably know some of this and maybe some of it I don't know, I want to ask you a little bit about, you know, the come up and you playing as a kid. And obviously Marcus's dad, Marvin, is a great player and a great musician. And like, when was it in your childhood that you picked up the guitar and started realizing you had a gift for that? Man, I never uh, I never had a another idea about it you know right it was so great I, my first memory is this Eldorado Epiphone that was my dad's and he was off to work and I found this guitar and opened the case and that's my first like cognitive memory yeah which is also my first musical memory like strumming it yeah and at that point I don't remember any sound I just remember seeing it and feeling the vibrations it was a really young memory and from there kind of birthed this obsession kind of a I couldn't let it go it was a feeling I was always chasing and music was my my therapist and my babysitter and my best bud so I just did it all the time and never had any other idea of doing anything else 
when I was about five, I thought I'd be a minister because that was the other family profession. Right. Music or ministry. So um, I grew out of that. <laughs> and I played with my dad. And first time in the studio was with him when I was 11. And uh, it just, it always kept growing. And when I was 13, that's when I stepped out and kind of started doing my own thing. And so. When you first strummed that guitar, were you playing it every day after that and just kind of figuring it out on your own? Was your dad showing you chords, showing you scales, things like that, helping you along with it? Yeah. I remember the first thing he taught me was uh, a Secret Agent Man. Okay. Like uh, the song from 007. And uh, just the riff. Da, 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 da. That's that, a classic. Yeah, chromatic yeah. riff. So I was learning like that and like Louie Louie. And I started out like playing all my... Uh, all my chords with like my thumb. That's how I'd play. Yeah. Just my thumb. And uh, it just progressed, and he got me this little uh, Les Paul, a miniature Les Paul that I'd learned on. And he and my mom, when I was really young, they uh, were kind of on the outs, you know? It was kind of on the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, what inevitably happened when I was five was a divorce. But when I was two, he did his first record. It was his first solo record, actually, when he was like, 46 years old wow. he did his first solo record because up until then the thing about my father you gotta understand is he always advocated for being your own man because he always wanted to just be the guitar player and he got kind of screwed on a lot of deals because of the people that he had hitched his wagon to so he'd always instill in me that I need to be my own man and at the age of 46 he did that for himself and this little Les Paul is what he wrote the majority of that record on <laughs> because my my mom and him were always button heads, and right. he'd sneak away to hang with me and, and write on my guitar. <laughs> yeah. And your grandfather played too, right? Oh, yeah. He was a patriarch uh, of the musical side of things. He uh, taught my dad and my Uncle Don and my Uncle Ron how to play, and uh, they were twins, Ron and Don. One played bass, he other played guitar. And they grew up uh, on like Air Force bases, and my grandfather was a staff master sergeant, so he'd spend a lot of time playing at the officers' clubs, and he would, uh, you know, bring in bands. Like he would hire people for the for the uh, the NCO clubs, and he'd bring in like Charlie Pride, and he'd bring in Johnny Cash, and wow. you know, uh, Barbara Mandrell. He'd bring in people like that, and what he would do is he would set it up for. Um, his band to back him up if they came in as solo artists or they'd open up for him. And I think it was, uh, I don't remember whose guitar player it was that I think Barbara Mandrell's guitar player tried to get his 345 from him, wow. which ends up being the one that I have now. Big Red. Big as Red, we call it, right? as we yeah. call it. And so your dad, when you were a kid, did you, he was playing gigs and he was, was he, he, but I, he I'm assuming he wasn't on the road. He wasn't on the road. Yeah. He was, he was working a day gig that he hated. I I haven't seen my father in a suit since these times. Yeah. He was working at a place called Dicos. Okay. He was a social contractor. So he would send people out to do, you know, little jobs. He was a contractor and he hated it. Like he you know my dad. Can you yeah, see him yeah. sitting behind a desk I like, sending people see out that. to do work in yeah. other places? Yeah. It's just the most uh benign job, uh mundane. I, I don't know, he just he felt like he needed to do that and kind of focus on being right in the church. And after a while of that, he just he couldn't take anymore, and he started playing again. Good. And good. that became his 
primary source of income, and he was working real hard. And that's how he was up until you know we were playing together. You know, mm-hmm. and Just, he and he teach he was teaching as well, right? Yeah, he'd have like forty students a week, right? Um, like thirty minute lessons. He he was teaching all the time, playing all the time. You know, that's the thing about musicians. We just got to stay in it one way or another. For sure, for sure. And did he kind of instill a lot of knowledge of what you might run into being a being a professional musician? Oh, yeah. I know that when I, I, I've, I've actually gotten to spend a lot of time with, with Marvin King. And uh, he he is, he, he is a knowledgeable guy, first of all, but he also... Um, is is somebody with with a lot of good stories oh, yeah. and uh but also i feel I, I feel that you know you're lucky to have someone that that guided you yeah. you know in that and i and now it feels like you've got things to tell him too but there's all there's a back and forth i know spending time in the studio with you guys together was really cool to kind of see <laughs> the way you guys are together and uh he's fun he, he's very knowledgeable yeah i grew up with road stories I, I mean, I didn't get Hansel and Gretel. I got stories about the cast that he was on the road with. So to me, these guys were just giants of the industry to me. And when yeah. I finally started meeting them when I was playing with my dad, 12, 13 years old, they were like the epitome. I was such big fans of theirs. Right. And I think that kind of steeped me for just kind of treating everybody as an equal, you know? And I... uh Looked so much up to these guys, and my dad would tell me stories about them, and that really made me want to get on the road. Because I didn't have any brothers growing up either. I had my sister, but she did her thing. Yeah, yeah. I did my thing. But, um, you know, that really made me get the itch to get on the road was hearing road stories growing up and what to look out for as yeah. well, more importantly. And is the road starting to wear it? Has it started to wear on you at all yet, being on the road? Or are you still excited by it? For me, it's like we we kind of go about things without any rearview mirrors or anything that can hold us back. Uh, I've always said the only thing that can hold me back is me. And I felt that at times. And when I start getting in my own way and start tripping over myself, I start to realign and put things back into perspective. And the road always does that. But the idea of it is we want to tour as much as we can, so we want to be as comfortable as possible. So we've moved from being in a minivan on top of each other and then making Greenville our home base and always getting back home to being in a van, sleeping on top of each other, sharing beds, and then we went to sharing rooms, and now we're on a bus together. And, you know, you know how that bunk alley starts to smell like feet after (laughs) about a couple of weeks? I know all about it. So now the move is to get past that and to be as comfortable as possible because being on the road is really what gives me life, energy, aside from the studio. Right. And it's harder and harder to make money from the studio. So as, as musicians, you know, we, we love being in the studio, but it's something where the balance, you know, some people back in the day or not even back in the day, but in the eighties and nineties could live off of their records. And now you pretty much have to do both. You know? Right. And, and especially like in this jam, uh, scene yeah. it's, is being on the road is kind of our livelihood, which is like right now with everybody being quarantined is like, there's a lot of people that, are concerned. I'm one of them. Yeah. Uh, I actually was in the middle of having a couple of months off, so I feel like I'm one of the lucky ones. Yeah. Because I kind of have been planning for this. Right. For a while, we've been kind of running like hell, and now we're taking time off. 
So the timing was good, if yeah. you want to put it that way. But we'll see where it goes from here. I mean, I think that's the big scare right yeah. now is like what's going to happen. If we knew after two weeks from now everything will be back to normal, I feel like our heads would be on a little straighter. Yeah. But it's the fact that we don't know what's going to happen is kind of the scary part. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously nobody wants to get sick either. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think, you know, some of us are looking at the silver lining and being like, okay, now we can be in the studio, we can write songs, we can do all this stuff together. But then now certain people aren't even wanting to do that and be around other people. So it's, uh, it's crazy. I think the, the, the fact that there's so much mystery is is the hard part. I think people are either intrigued by the unknown or they're scared to death of it. Yeah. And right now you're kind of seeing everybody going into their corners, you know? Right. Right. I think that we will get a lot of good music, Out of this, uh, again, I don't want to <laughs> yeah. downplay how serious it is because it's very, very serious. But, um, yeah, I do think that there's a lot of creativity that will be spawned from this this time of all the musicians we know being home. Right. I mean, could you imagine there being studios around through ever, every other, like, pandemic yeah, in right. history, right? You know, it'd be a lot of fire out it'd there. It'd be a whole different thing. <laughs> and it's interesting because, you know, a lot of musicians, at least I sometimes am torn because, yes, back in the day, um, without the internet, when without, you know, all of the communication we have now, you would put a record out and people would pay attention and you might sell a lot more copies and mm-hmm. there would be, you know, people were listening to full albums and not just streaming bits and pieces but at the same time now the collaboration becomes so easy because we can send tracks back and forth we can you know a lot of people are doing live streams of personal you know concerts in their studio and stuff like that so what i think will happen is maybe we'll find some new avenues for us to create together potentially make money in ways that are not you know, not traditional, traditional yeah. and not necessarily like here's a ticket and buy, buy a ticket and come to my concert. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. You know, I think that we have to stay in the positive mind frame yeah. in order for good things to come out of it. But this may be the last anybody hears of us. This, this interview. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I hope not. part do you you know write at home and and kind of sit there with an acoustic guitar or is that how you've kind of built your catalog it's man you know i was talking to a friend of mine about this earlier i look at music just like therapy and and writing is is almost more like therapy because you think about just the initial like idea of going to see a therapist and admitting that you you need some help outside of what you're able to handle on your own, mm-hmm. and you look at the idea of like, all right, I got to get there, I got to show up, and then I got to become so vulnerable, I got to open up to this person, and to me that's just how writing is because you got to find the time to do it, and you got to set yourself down and be like, we're doing this, we're putting what's in here in my heart yeah. onto the paper, and you got to be vulnerable. So if you're around people. It can be kind of weird and like co-writing, you know, it's got to be like when we write together, it's got to be people that you really trust to yeah. be that transparent with. But 
long story short, for the most part, I've written with just an acoustic guitar, and I like to use a pen and pad. I like to use a pen because, you know, the old idea remains. Yeah, yeah. You can't erase it. I like to work that way. Yeah. Not many people your age that still work that way. So it feels good to know that yeah. that still, still exists, you know? Um, and now, writing a song, you're able to say things that you wouldn't necessarily be able to say, you know? Yeah, you can be a little more metaphoric. Yeah. And sometimes you can hide some meanings in there and you can. Oh, yeah. But I think that the best songs are the ones that are the most revealing of somebody um, and, and, you know, the most vulnerable. Yeah. But um, I agree. Is there an album? Or you could, or an album, or even like an artist, kind of an experience, a listening experience that made you say. I know you said you picked up, you opened that guitar, but was, was there an album or, or or an artist, or even a song, that made you say as a kid, like, I want to do this, I want to dedicate my my life to making music. Man, I guess early on, it was really the Beatles. Wow, that got me. Yeah, that was not what I expected <laughs> you to say. Yeah, my dad was a big Beatles fan. And we'd watch, like, the Beatles anthology. This was real early. And um, I guess it was Magical Mystery Tour. And okay. hearing that, that instrumental tune, Blue Jay Way, and being like, wow. I mean, because at the time, I was just instrumentally driven. Yeah. And it wasn't until around the age of 13 that I started writing and singing. But it was really the Beatles uh, that initially got me started on that uh, that path of, like, here we go. And more recently, in my later teens, it was uh, uh, Pet Sounds. Oh, yeah. So I know you asked for one, but it's, it's really a two-parter. No, no you, can, you can give a couple. You know, the Beach Boys and the Beatles, I guess I didn't span too far, but... Well, they were, you know, inspiring each other heavily. You know, that yeah, was a big... big time. I mean, that era of music, if there was a time... I always pick a couple, because like the 50s for jazz, being in New York City. Yep. Um... Or that area, like late '60s and early '70s in California, or I, or, I, or in yeah. or in London, man. Right, like that era when like Hendrix came over there, and it was like freaked everybody the out. Stones and Clapton and all those guys hanging out. Like I've read so many books where it's the other guy's perspective of that <laughs> same era, or sure. not even that same era, that same like night of seeing Hendrix, or that same time period where Chaz Chandler brought him over there. And man, that was so. That's an important era to me too. Yeah, I had a British flag in my childhood bedroom. Yeah, the British invasion was a big one for me and uh, I'd spent all my time reading or watching about that whole era I like like revolutionary times in history yeah. that's what gets me excited well we might be in one and we're in one right now man. <laughs> yeah it's weird because it's sometimes hard to tell yeah. but if you can tell right now that that uh things are changing it's a divisive time yeah I mean that's what kind of starts it and shit a plague <laughs> yeah right it's raining in LA yeah come on I know it's crazy it's we, walked, we walked in my backyard and I was like it's never rained like this yeah it's crazy but it's kind of uh, you know fitting to the <laughs> to the times right now mm -hmm. and uh, all the things going on around us so is there a song or an album or a piece of work that you have created where you kind of sat back and were able to see it and say, okay, this was like a turning point or something that you were really proud of and, and kind of marked a new level of artistry for yourself. As humbly as I can put it, it's with every record, I'm, I'm uh, trying to grow, you know? And I, I guess I feel that way more so with every record. So with El Dorado, I felt that 
But the first time I truly felt like I just made a record that is going to change the way that I approach recording or performing, that was with Carolina Confessions. And that's because I went into the studio. That was the first time that I saw the band kind of see that I had a vision and they just kind of laid back, you know, because up until that point we had been more collaborative. And, I mean, obviously they did their thing in the studio and, you know, uh, all the props to Justin Johnson, the horn lines that he created for that record were just exquisite to my ear. But uh, being in that situation and and working with my band and with Dave Cobb at the time, it really felt like a, a turning point. Yeah. You know, musically for me, and as a as a a producer of music, and as a as a performer, and as a writer, everything just felt a little a little more on the note, you know. Right and concise. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think that working with a band is the best, but it's also hard to have a collective vision that works in harmony with each other. You know, That's why it's so special when it happens. Yeah, when it happens, it's great. But it is easier, and, and nothing to take away from each band member, but it's easier when there's one person leading the way. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, I know that I've found that in both in being a band member or being the leader. It's like, you, you know, it's when one person has a vision, um, it's sometimes best to support that vision. I've learned that as a producer as well, or as a writer, and when to jump forward and when to lay back is as important as anything. Well, yeah. I mean, as being part of a unit, it's, it's being a team player is just as important as anything. If I don't have a particular vision for this particular track we're working on or at the time, and if somebody approaches me with something that they feel strongly about, you know, I think being part of a team is like just a matter of, I'm not going to not follow your vision just because I don't feel like we should. Right. If I don't have something to combat it, why wouldn't I follow that, you know? And that's the idea of being in a team. Now, is there a um moment on stage or even like a road story that uh that you can share with us that was like either hilarious or completely unexpected? I mean, I guess the story I'd go for as far as the most insane I ever felt was being at Eric Clapton's Crossroads, and it's it's a it's a tamer piece, but yeah. it's a it's a really important time for me. Being invited there first of all was insane, and then playing, and then Clapton being side stage when we got off the stage, I just I was shaking the whole time, I was trembling yeah. going on the stage, and my girlfriend said, "I've never seen you like this," and I was like, "Yeah." <laughs> and we went out and I was so nervous because my whole plan going out there that day was like this is a guitar festival even fans of guitars at you know 8 o'clock at night Clapton's already gone on Yeah. even fans of guitar are fucking tired of hearing the guitar right now yeah. so I went out and opened with a a Sunhouse uh, acapella piece so I was nervous as hell because <laughs> yeah. I was going out to sing acapella in front of all these people. And we had played arenas that size with Chris Stapleton, but we were always first to three. So, you know, it's, it's not full. 20,000 yeah. people, but we'd have like 4,000. So it was full on this particular day. And uh, I, st I went out there and started singing, and the rest of the set just seemed to fall right into place. And I came off the stage, and Clapton was there, and we had a really nice exchange. Um, and I said... I mean, he said, I don't know what to say. 
I wasn't expecting that. I, was, I don't know what to say to you. And I said, I don't know what to say to you. <laughs> so we just hugged it out. <laughs> I gave him a really man. big sweaty hug. And then uh, after that, you know, we spoke for a minute and uh, really sweet man. And I was just, I'm still riding off that. Yeah, no, it's, it's like a wave. It's that's like a wave. Huge. That's huge. So you got a little time off, and then, and then, well, I guess we'll see how long, how long the time off goes. Yeah, we'll see. And then you're on the road, with Chris Stapleton again, right? Yeah, I mean, and the Black Keys, right? Yeah, the Black Keys this summer, and uh, I'm not sure when this will be out, but this summer, me and Grace, uh, Grace Potter, that is, we're going to be doing a, a co-headlining tour together. Um, and we'll see if that happens. But right. before that, will be a Black Keys tour, and then we'll do a European run, and then the Dates with Grace, and then we'll be doing our our, uh, our annual family reunion. You know, this is all if everything goes if as everything planned. everything goes as planned. Yeah. And El Dorado is the most recent album. Um, and tell me a little bit about working with Dan Auerbach. He, he, Dan Auerbach from Black Keys produced the record. Man. Who I'm Dan, a big fan of. Dan's really, really great to work with. He's He's very precise, you know. I mean, I'll say it's collaborative more on the pre-production side of things because we wrote everything together. But, I mean, it was a lot like when we write together, it's a lot like they were pulling out of me the things that I needed to say, and it turned into a record about coming of age as a young man, and it became a a little autobiographical portion of my life from age 17 to 24. And just talked about all things in my life and going into the studio was incredible because I mean he's he's managed just like yourself to get this vibe out of a place that used to be like a insurance call center you know right. but he's vibed it up so much that when you go in there you feel like you're walking into stacks or into royal or any number of studios that have really been steeped in vibes yeah yeah and I walked in there and I was like, "Man, what studio did this used to be?" Yeah. He's like, "No, no, no, it wasn't. It just right. is." And we started working, and you got Gene Chrisman on drums, as well as Chris Saint Hilaire, right? Our, our man from the London Souls, and Dave Rowe on bass. Uh, you got uh, Bobby Woods on keys, and two other insane players: Russ Paul, uh, Billy and Sanford. These, these are guys who've been on. Yeah. Thousands of yeah. Nashville records. Bobby yeah. Womack. Yeah. Two of them were in the Memphis Boys yeah. with Reggie Young. So we had the cats there. That's what's really incredible about what he's doing is because a lot of people would say maybe derivative, but it's really not because these guys were the ones that did it. Right. And the sound is pure. And we cut 18 songs in three days. Wow. Because the way that he produces is just, he's got his, I don't want to say machine because it's almost derogatory, but he's got his system He's got his guys. You go in, and he just, he stands at, like right here, he stands at the console like a like a shipping captain. Right. It looks like Captain Ahab, you know? <laughs> he just stands there, and I always say you can see for miles and miles the slightest adjustment, and you can see how it's going to affect the rest of the session, how it's going to affect a Grammy nom, or yeah, how yeah. it's going to affect how people listen to it in 20 years. He's got that foresight, which... You know, just like yourself, that's the kind of people I look up to are people that uh, have that scope. Well, that the thing is, you can have an ear and you can have a skill for producing, but nothing 
does more for you as a producer than experience and producing various different people and watching those things happen and and un, and and roll out. So watching a young artist do this, that, and the other, and what happens to their career. So he's and then also building your own studio and having your own sounds is everything. Which is finally I'm I'm getting right. there, which was always you know a struggle for me because when you go into a studio and you have a different engineer and you're doing all these different things. I mean, not that you can't create your sound that way, but you're kind of start you have you're like stepping back. But if you have your sounds dialed in and you've got your your thing. Yeah, and your team. That's what was special about that was just what you said. Every night we'd leave, and we'd have a finished product. Yeah, right there. We'd do six tunes a day, and we'd listen to them, and they were just like the well. For instance, was it was finished when we left. We didn't do anything else to it. You know, other songs we may add. We added some strings. Paul Franklin came in and played steel. You know, like little things. Yeah. But we leave every day with like six complete songs. That's I've never worked in that capacity, so it was pretty interesting. Well, I love the record, um, and uh, "Beautiful Stranger" is my jam. Beautiful Ranger. Can, can we talk about that little? <laughs> when we when Marcus and I were in the studio, I was probably what three four years ago. Yeah, in Memphis. And you know, Marcus has all of the playing ability in the world, and this one this one solo, I kept being like. You know, just you know, a little bit less, you know, and then the analogy <laughs> became, "You're an old man in the park, <laughs> with, yeah. a, with a with a with the cane, with the flip down with stool, with the flip down stool, yeah, now flip down the stool, yeah, and and because you play such soulful stuff, so sometimes I'm like, man. So uh, on Beautiful Stranger, I, I called him and I, or I texted you and I said, you, "You've you've reached the old man in the park, flip <laughs> the down old man. status, yeah." Well, it's like that same old man in the park, takes his time, he's in no hurry, he's got a members-only jacket, I imagine. Oh, yeah, yeah. A Kangol Kangol. hat. There it yeah. is. You still so remember it. It's yeah. all there. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I think a big part of that was it. I was so taken out of my element. Yeah. And being surrounded by those cats yeah. and, like, who were not right. in any hurry. Because they are those old men. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it helps to have them playing on the track. And you. I was they, they were looking at me like... You yeah. know, we're here to play on your session. But to me, I was, I'm playing on y'all's session. Right, right. I looked so much up to them. I was just so uh, woefully intimidated, but in a good way. So just trying to meet their standards. Yeah. I was like, what would they like to hear? That's, <laughs> That's how I That's played huge. I the hear whole it. record. I hear yeah. it. Well, Marcus, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. Thanks for having me. And uh, y'all keep keep your eyes open. For everything Marcus is doing, because pretty much all of it is badass, and and he's a great dude too. Um, and hopefully we'll make some more music together one of these days, maybe in this room. Let's do it. And uh, thank y'all for listening. Cheers. Once again, that was Marcus King hanging out with me in the studio. I'd like to thank everybody for tuning in, and we have a lot of really great episodes coming up. So stay tuned to the Plus One Podcast. And check us out on Instagram at Kraz, K-R-A-Z plus one. We're going to end the episode with this track off of the El Dorado album by Marcus King. Produced by Dan Auerbach. And this one is called Beautiful Stranger. Beautiful.
Krasno Plus One is hosted by me, Eric Krasno. Executive producers are RJB and Christina Collins. Audio production by Matt Dwyer. Produced by myself and Ben Baruch of 1111 Group. All original music is by me, and most of which are instrumentals from my album, Telescope, under the artist name Kras. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email Kras plus one at gmail. That's K-R-A-Z-P-L-U-S-O-N-E at gmail.com. Send me some questions. Maybe I'll answer them on air. Send me suggestions of other guests you'd like to hear on the show. Thanks again for tuning in. I'll see you next time.